Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with uh, ASTS, uh, Transplant Surgery. Right now, we are joined with Dr. Erica Hoffman. Uh, she's a assistant professor of surgery at University of Nebraska uh, in the Division of Transplant Surgery since 2015. She did her medical uh, schooling at Wake Forest University, followed by general surgery residency at Henry Ford Hospital. Her fellowship in transplant surgery was at University of Alabama. Um, she currently serves as the Vanguard Committee of the American Society of Transplant Surgery. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hoffman. Oh, thank you for having me. So to for this current episode, we want to we want to concentrate on a kidney patient. I will set the scene for the case. Um, 55-year-old female with end-stage renal disease due to diabetic nephropathy. She's on di- she's been on dialysis for three months, and she presents for a dialysis access evaluation. Could you briefly give us some of the causes of ESRD? And what are the questions that you would consider to ask the patient in the, um, the H&P part uh, when you're considering a patient for dialysis access? Absolutely. So um, the most common causes of end-stage kidney disease in, in our patient population in the States is um, hypertension and diabetes. Um, we also see patients with polycystic kidney disease, um, as well as the nephropathies, similar to IgA uh, nephropathy or FSGS. Um, there are also congenital um, disorders that lead to end-stage kidney disease. Um, they are not as common, um, but they are good to know, such as reflux disease or um, congenital solitary kidney. Um, um, so I would say those are the major causes of end-stage kidney disease in our country. When I see a patient in clinic for dialysis access, um, I start with asking them about the type of long-term dialysis access they are thinking about. So for instance, um, in the state of Nebraska, we have one of the largest populations of patients on peritoneal dialysis, um, but by the time they make it to my clinic, they are usually not a candidate for peritoneal dialysis for one reason or another, and are looking at either um, creation of an AV fistula or placement of an AV graft. Um, I uh, talk to patients about um, you know, the cause of their kidney disease as um, in, in sometimes being a predictor as to whether or not um, fistula or graft will be successful. So when we think about patients with diabetes, we look at diabetic control, um, hypertensive patients the same. Um, I ask about smoking because that is also um, a risk factor for um, 
difficulties with AV fistula creation. Uh, every patient that comes to clinic comes with um, the vein mapping, so that is a bilateral ultrasounds of the upper extremities, in which we look at the size um, and quality of both the artery and vein. When we talk about the veins, we talk about the superficial, the enous system of the upper extremities. Um, I teach students that there are two veins, the cephalic vein and the basilic vein. We look at both of those in both arms um, for size and quality to create a fistula. I do talk to patients about previous surgery, history of carpal tunnel, neuropathy in the upper extremity, um, and do a thorough examination as well. Many of our patients come with cardiac disease, so I discuss um, the severity of their cardiac disease. Um, we talk about heart failure, um, as well as um, any arrhythmias that may affect maturity or patency of a graft or fistula. Are there any particular complications or risk uh, that patients face when you make the fistula or the graft? Sure. So I do talk to patients particularly about um, a syndrome called Steele's syndrome, and that is when um, the fistula or graft steals too much um, arterial blood flow from the hand. Um, so in the symptoms that are related to steel syndrome can be numbness, um, tingling cold hand or fingers, um, as well as pain. Uh, in the right patient, if you um, do, do an ultrasound and create a fistula or graft in the right patient, steel syndrome is uncommon, but it is something to um, look out for. If patients are smoking, I require them to quit smoking. Um, and then I discuss with patients the patency rate of the of fistulas versus grafts and the need for um, angioplasties, especially of the central of the venous system in patients who have had prolonged um, catheters. This patient who's coming to clinic has only been on dialysis for three months. So probably will not be a problem, but we often see patients who have been on dialysis with catheters for a lot longer than that. And is dialysis a good long-term solution for this patient? So in general, no. Um, in general, I, I tell patients that half of all patients who, who are on dialysis will be alive at five years. So there's a very good chance that um, one in every two patients will not be alive um, long-term on dialysis. Um, so the best treatment option for kidney disease in the right patient is a kidney transplant. So how long does a person usually have to wait to get that kidney transplantation? So interestingly enough, um, it, it varies widely around the country. Um, in our region, Region 8, um, in a Nebraska patients spend somewhere between a year to three on dialysis, um, but on the East Coast and the West Coast, the patients can spend up to a decade on dialysis, so waiting for a deceased donor kidney. Since the wait is so long, what's like what other options do you give them um, when they're waiting for their kidney? 
Sure. So um, I talk to patients and tell them that it's just like cancer treatment. If you come in and you have a diagnosis of cancer, we tell you what is the best treatment option for your type of cancer. So when I see patients with end-stage kidney disease, I tell them the very best treatment option for you is a living donor kidney transplant. Um, so I encourage patients and discuss with them a lot about the different types of transplants um, and uh, tell them that the living donor kidney transplant is the best option for a number of reasons, including not having to wait um, on the transplant list for a deceased donor kidney, that the living donor kidneys are screened, so they are excellent kidneys. Um, that living donor surgery in general is um, safely performed at almost every major transplant center, that living donor kidneys last longer, have a less incidence of um, perioperative surgical complications, as well as rejection. So there are multiple advantages to seeking out a living donor kidney, and we give them as much help and support as we can. What kind of algorithm do you go through when you are working up a patient before kidney transplant? So um, kidney transplant patients have a multitude of tests. Um, nearly everybody who's evaluated for a kidney transplant has an extensive cardiac evaluation, which includes an, um, 2D echo and a stress test. Um, I would say as a result of that stress test, about 30% of patients go on to have a cardiac cath. Um, we uh, also make sure that whatever the cause of their kidney disease is, that it is in the best control possible. So if patients are diabetic, they need to have um, a hemoglobin A1C of less than 9, so they have to have in some way some level of diabetic control, um, as well as uh, they need to have electrolytes that are stable. So we... Um, we look at patients' phosphorus, um, potassium, fluid gains and shifts in between the dialysis sessions. We make sure that patients are compliant with their current treatment. Every patient has to have age-appropriate cancer screenings um, prior to being approved for transplant. So if that's a colonoscopy, um, a mammogram, prostate screening, um, a pap smear. Um, we also, in certain patients, they have either an abdominal x-ray or a CAT scan to look at the vasculature to, do, to make sure that there's appropriate um, arterial vasculature to, um, to support a kidney transplant. Any patient with the urologic disease, we make sure that we understand their bladder capacity or in which way we are going to um, create their bladder drainage. Um, so we discuss with pre, uh, patients' previous abdominal operations if they've had them. Patients have a social work and psychological evaluation as well. So it's a pretty extensive evaluation. 
And is there an age cutoff for the the people that are eligible for a kidney transplant? So at our center, we do not have an age cutoff. Um, I know on the East Coast and West Coast, there probably is an age cutoff somewhere around the mid-70s. Um, and that's usually because patients in that age group do not often have living donor kidneys, so end up having to be on the wait list for some time. And by the time they do receive a deceased donor kidney, or at least would get an offer, would be close to 80. Um, so it's more about physiologic age than it is about chronologic age. So we can have a patient who's 40 but has a frailty score that puts them closer to 80 and has have somebody who's 80 who is active, employed outside the house, runs two to three miles a day. So in general, I do not think there's an age cutoff necessarily, um, but we do look at physiologic age more than we evaluate chronologic age, if that makes sense. Yes, definitely. All right. We are going to actually follow this patient over the course of the podcast. So um, we will come back to her later, but we wanted to transition <laughs> from clinical care to um, asking you a few more personal questions. So could you just uh, tell the audience uh, what you do in transplant surgery, kind of what your job looks like and um, how that plays out on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, sure. So I am a um, kidney and kidney pancreas transplant surgeon. Um, I am I run the pediatric um, kidney transplant program, the surgical side. Um, I am also in charge of the living donor program. And I, as was alluded to before, um, have a vascular access practice. Outside of transplant, I also do other surgeries in transplant recipients. So I have a polycystic kidney disease clinic. Um, I operate um, on patients who need ureteral reconstructions, as well as removal of malignancies in um, previous kidney transplants. So I have a busy, busy surgical practice. Um, and that plays into my everyday in that I nearly every day um, interact with the, pedi the pediatric nephrologists as well as the coordinators and nurses that are part of the living donor kidney uh, program. I have a vascular access clinic every day of the week. Um, and in general, I would say on average do probably one to two kidney transplants a week um, on average. How does call fit into all that then? Yes, yeah, so um, I take call um, every other week. Um, I'm currently on a call stretch of about three weeks, but um, on average I take call every other week and every other weekend. I'm just amazed that you can balance doing all of that. And um, my, I'm just curious as to with the dialysis access clinic, um, when is that something that you as a transplant surgeon who does dialysis access takes care of, or when do those patients go to vascular surgeons? So um, I would say that 
the vascular surgery program at our institution takes a majority of patients. I usually see patients that are um, sort of being bridged to transplant or any patient that has, is being considered for transplant or has had a, a kidney transplant that has failed and is going back on dialysis. So I probably see about a quarter of all dialysis access patients at our institution. How did you decide to have a kidney-only practice? How long have you been out of fellowship? And what was it like starting as a young attending uh, straight out of fellowship? So I graduated from fellowship in 2015, um, and this is the first and only job I've had. So um, when it comes to choosing a kidney-only practice, I think so... I think about transplant in a way um, that I think is a little bit different than other surgical specialties. I think that transplant has to choose the person. Not entirely sure that I, I chose transplant. I think it was more or less that transplant chose me. And when I think about kidney, I think that kidney transplant chose me. So I love kidney patients. I love taking care of patients who are on dialysis. I have just a very strong empathy for patients who, who spend time on dialysis because I don't think that many people in healthcare understand the sacrifice that goes into being on hemodialysis. Um, and I love caring for those patients and seeing them bridge over to transplant and taking them off of dialysis and then following them after that to see what they do with their life when they don't have to do dialysis three days a week for three hours a day. Um, so I, I chose it because I love the patient and um, I love kidneys. <laughs> and I tell people that I see in clinic that kidneys have their own personality. They're so different, but when, they, when the patient comes to the OR, when the kidney gets here, we form a relationship with that organ. Um, we learn about it, we understand it, we care for it, we sing to it, um, we name it, um, and it just becomes a part of the patient's life and our life as well. So for me, I didn't I did not choose kidney because of the lifestyle, uh, <laughs> because I worked very hard, <laughs> very, very hard. Um, I chose it because it was for me, the greatest um, thing I can give back to um, in all of healthcare, as well as I get to operate on kids and adults. So that is a huge part of who I am. I love operating on kids. That's very uh, that's good advice for rising uh, transplant surgeons. I guess the last question, you said you're on call a lot every other week and weekend. And um, how do you do you have a life outside the hospital and how do you balance that? And um, are you happy with your decision to be a transplant surgeon? Sure. So I guess I'll start with I am extremely happy that I chose this profession. I would not, um, I mean, even looking back over all of the hours and all of the time um, and sometimes the heartache um, and the difficulty and the successes, I would have not have chosen any other profession except this. Um, I I don't really know how I do it um, when it comes to family life. I'm probably not the best person to, <laughs> to ask about, um, uh, you know, work-life balance because I, I'm not sure that it is a balance. 
Um, I think it's more of a give or take. I was passed on this advice and will pass it on to students that if you decide to go into transplant or surgery in general, but if you decide to go into transplant, transplant is a lot of, a lot of sacrifice. Um, and if you think that every time you sacrifice something, you're losing it, then you spend most of your career unhappy. I look at it like I am not, when I sacrifice something, I don't lose it. I just pass it on to somebody else. So if I miss a birthday or a holiday, I miss it because I am, I am giving to somebody. So even though I sacrifice in my life, I don't lose those opportunities. I just pass them on to somebody else. So if somebody says, well, we're having this work party or we're having this thing at the hospital and I say, no, I need to be there for my child's ballet recital or gymnastics. My children are in a lot of sports. I have made the decision I'm not going to miss those important aspects. So yeah, I make sacrifices both at home and at my job, but I understand that I don't lose those opportunities. I'm just passing that on to my children instead. And so I think it's something that we have to strive to do every day. Um, most of us are not born learning, like knowing how to balance a job, a marriage, and a family. Um, but it's something that we have to make a conscious effort towards every day. Like an hour ago, I was at my kids' back-to-school party, um, which was important for me to be there. Um, but in an hour, I'm going to leave and go and do a transplant, so I won't get to tuck them in. But again, I don't lose those things. I just pass that gift on to somebody else. So I think that's what has helped me um, sort of be able to have a family and be a surgeon, um, especially when things are tough. I think that was very poignant, not just for those interested in transplant surgery, but all of us in surgery that we're not, when we sacrifice, we're not losing it. And I think that's very well put. Um, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us and talking about our case and also a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS. And today in conversation, we have Dr. Vincent Kassengall. He's the chief of the Division of Abdominal Transplant and the surgical director of the Kidney Transplant Program at the Atrium Health, which is uh, Carolina's medical center in Charlotte. He did his med school from EVMS residency at Carolina's Medical Center, but followed by fellowship at University of Minnesota. We're so very glad to have you on Behind the, Behind the Knife. Thank you and welcome aboard. Uh, we would like to get started with today's podcast um, by uh, starting the discussion of a liver patient. Uh, so this is a 60-year-old male with cirrhosis due to uh, NASH presenting for evaluation for a liver transplant. Um, so our first question in this series would be, what are some of the causes of portal hypertension? Uh, thanks for having me, and I uh, uh, appreciate that. Yeah, um, so uh, the, a lot of the patients that I see with portal hypertension come with a diagnosis like like NASH, um, 
And uh, as you say, when somebody comes in, I, I usually have them uh, worked up. But uh, uh, certainly, uh, there are a lot of uh, other reasons of portal, hyperta- portal hypertension. And the most common that I see is uh, uh, cirrhosis and uh, NASH being a common cause, alcoholic liver disease, hepatitis C, et cetera. But there are certainly some other uh, um, causes of uh, portal hypertension uh, that we have to think of, things like congenital congenital hepatic fibrosis, portal vein thrombosis, um, so some con- some uh, co- congenital reasons. But also, um, we see things like uh, Bud-Chiari uh, syndrome, and uh, um, certainly there, there are a lot of other reasons why somebody would have uh, portal hypertension. What are some of the symptoms of end-stage liver disease and portal hypertension that you see when your patients come in? Uh, I, I guess the most common uh, um, uh, symptoms that I see are um, uh, intractable ascites, uh, so abdominal swelling uh, w- with fluid, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of times being treated with diuretics, et cetera, but uh, uh, many times requiring paracentesis and multiple taps. Um, uh, a lot of patients uh, had had history of uh, GI bleeding from uh, uh, esophageal varices. Uh, so they'll come already with uh, multiple banding procedures, et cetera. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, uh, other co- uh, other symptoms that uh, we see that, you know, e- even more distressing, dis- distressing to families are patients who have uh, encephalopathy. And so that ammonia buildup that, uh, that, that patients get uh, when their livers fail uh, can be uh, quite distressing. So those are the three most common that I ask about. Uh, there are a lot of other uh, um, symptoms that people have, uh, uh, the muscle wasting, the fatigue, um, and uh, uh, that uh, general sarcopenia and, and weakness that uh, um, those of us who take care of uh, liver disease patients uh, can see coming down the hallway. Uh, and you could, you could just tell that uh, the patient's heading to your office with that, uh, uh, with, with that look about them. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, uh, specific um, symptoms uh, like we like we just mentioned, um, hepatic encephalopathy, ascites, and esophageal varices, and some of the things like as an attending uh, over the course um, of time you have, you know, you always keep in your ba- in the back of your mind about these uh, big three symptom categories. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, we have residents and students on our service, and uh, I, I usually ask them, uh, you know, what are the major symptoms of, of liver disease? And um, and and a- after a while, they'll they'll usually get to the big three as you name them, um, and then I ask them what the treatment is, and they'll usually jump to liver transplant. And uh, um, uh, of, of course, that's a good answer. They're on liver transplant rotation, but. Uh, uh, there are a lot of treatments uh, that that we need to address uh, as patients come in, and so you know, patients with, with encephalopathy, we certainly uh, um, uh, uh, counsel them on uh, dietary uh, restrictions, etc. Um, we give them treatments like lactulose that help uh, decrease uh, the ammonia in the blood. Um, we ask them to limit their protein, etc. And uh, uh, and and it's that type of lifestyle modification that helps get these patients through. As we, um, um, uh, as as they're on their course of liver disease, um, as far as uh, ascites, 
um, a, as you know, um, uh, ascites uh, develops when patients get that portal hypertension and that scarred liver, and that increases that hepatic pressure and that portal vein pressure and uh, leads to th that uh, buildup of fluid in the abdomen. Uh, and so there are some uh, uh, dietary changes that need to be made, some decrease in, in, in their dietary uh, sodium. Um, we treat them with diuretics, and so there are uh, uh, things that can be done to help prevent the buildup. But then what about the buildup that occurs in patients who have these ascites and they're short of breath from it, it's really lifestyle limiting, you know, then, then sometimes we move on to tapping that fluid and, uh, um, you know, making sure there's no infection in that fluid, SBP. Um, uh, and uh, if there is an infection, we treat that. So uh, paracentesis is a mainstay for a lot of these patients with refractory ascites. Um, for those patients with portal hypertension with uh, esophageal varices or ascites, we consider a TIPS procedure, uh, a transjugular uh, intrahepatic portal systemic shunt. Uh, and uh, a lot of times these can be successful. Um, not all patients are eligible from it. Patients with uh, renal insufficiency with uh, uh, real, very bad encephalopathy. Sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes this can be uh, truly a, a game changer for patients with ascites. So we look at um, uh, we look to things like that. And, you know, patients with esophageal varices. Um, that that could be one of the most distressing things is waking up to a family member uh, vomiting blood or or, or or vomiting blood, and um, it's it's a very morbid. Uh, uh, event that occurs. Uh, uh, many patients die from it and uh, um, require blood transfusions and ICU stays, et cetera. And, uh, um, uh, you know, th th those patients uh, um, uh, can be very sick at times. And so uh, I think as you're caring for patients who need liver transplant, you got to remember that um, there, there are a lot of other treatments uh, that go along with it that, uh, the the natural history of somebody with liver disease isn't uh, a short one, uh, that there's a lot of medical care that goes along with it. At the beginning, you Thanks mentioned some of the... Oh, that was perfect. At the beginning, you mentioned some of the different causes or uh, reasons that people get cirrhosis, but can you talk a little bit about why the indicate what the indications are for liver transplant and maybe how that's changed over the years of you as you've been in practice oh yeah um and, and that's one of the exciting things about transplant is um just even in the years and i really uh, track my career post post residency so i'll say that i've been in transplant for 15 years um and uh even in the 15 years that i've been doing transplant uh uh that's changed and so um Hepatitis C was the number one reason why uh, I was transplanting somebody when I was doing my residency and early fellowship. And uh, uh, I remember because uh, uh, when somebody had some graft dysfunction afterwards, we always feared this uh, um, fibrosing cholestatic hepatitis uh, uh, that, that happened in uh, recurrent hep C patients. With some of the treatments uh, for hepatitis C now, it's becoming less common. And so now we're seeing more of the... Uh, fatty liver disease, a non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Um, we're seeing more patients with alcoholic liver disease. Um, you know, uh, in, in my early days, we wouldn't touch somebody who uh, had a drink uh, um, in the past six months to a year, and they really had to um, uh, have abstained from, uh, from, from drinking. And what, what we found is that 
um, a lot of these patients we didn't need to keep off the list, that uh, we could transplant those patients safely, and we can uh, uh, rehabilitate their addiction to alcohol. Uh, and so um, uh, there is a lot of success uh, uh, treating patients who have uh, alcoholic liver disease who really haven't had access to treatment uh, for their addictions prior to it. Uh, and uh, so I, I think those are two of the, the biggest changes I've seen uh, is, are the changes in hep C treatments and uh, um, the patients with, uh, um, with the uh, acute alcoholic hepatitis that perhaps we wouldn't transplant. And then obviously all the um, uh, patients with uh, liver tumors um, that uh, perhaps were not getting transplanted 15 years ago. So um, HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, is one of those cancers that actually, if you do a liver transplant, they do better. Uh, and um, uh, there have been a lot of treatments and downstaging for uh, HCC. Uh, that have really brought patients back from the edge and uh, back to a point where if you transplant them, you really get a good long-term outcome. Uh, and so uh, it, it's, it's certainly an exciting time to be in transplant. Keeping on the same topic, what kind of workup is needed or mandatory for a liver transplant patient? Yeah, um, you know, I kind of think of these, these in phases is, uh, you know, number one, um, what got us there, and so uh, you know, making sure you you know what the cause of liver disease is, and uh, um, is liver transplant one of the better options for that type of liver disease, whether it's Hep C or or, or Nash, and you know, um, and, and so first you got to figure out what got you there, uh, and then once you decide that hey, this liver's not going to get better because because that's the other treatment is well maybe this liver can get better maybe if if there's a liver cancer. Hepatitis C, you could cure the hepatitis C, you could cure the liver cancer. Maybe you don't need a liver. Um, and and uh, certainly we, we, we look at those. Uh, but then once you get down the road that we need, we need a liver, then, uh, then you have to decide, well, okay, is it, is it safe to do it? And so uh, uh, there's a whole medical evaluation that goes into that. Uh, it, it, uh, is the patient a good candidate uh, from a cardiac perspective? Do they have enough uh, energy? Are they debilitated? Um, is there anything we need to do to tune them up to get them through what could be a pretty uh, a long and morbid operation? Do they have what it takes to take care of the liver afterwards? Do they have the social support, the family support, the financial support? Are they going to take their medicines? Are they going to follow up? Uh, that's sometimes a tougher, um, a tougher workup because uh, you, you know you're, you're you're getting to know these patients in a short amount of time. Uh, but you need them to be committed to the process, the lifelong commitment. Every so often, we'll transplant somebody who just doesn't take care of the liver afterwards. And, and that really is disheartening for the team to see somebody uh, do that. Fortunately, we don't see it very often um, that most people are very thankful and very compliant with what they do. Um, but we really spend a lot of time making sure that uh, uh, we're not wasting um, uh, resources uh, on some on uh, on uh, a situation that's not going to be successful, and um, we we uh, in transplant are really committed to doing everything we can to really turning around what could be uh, a, a life-ending event. How can you decide what patient is going to be transplanted? Because there are lots of patients that may get approved to be transplanted, and what determines when they actually get the liver? 
Um, fortunately, I don't have to decide uh, who, who's at the front of that line. Uh, we have a system um, based on how sick somebody is. It's called a MELD score. Uh, and uh, uh, that MELD score, for the most part, determines uh, who gets the next liver. Now, I get to decide whether um, uh, this liver fits, whether it's a, a right match for somebody, whether um, uh, they should wait for a better one. Um, but the MELD score uh, determines, for the most part, um, who um, who's next on the list. Uh, there are a few cir circumstances where people's MELD scores are adjusted based on whether they have a cancer or whether they have other medical issues. Or sometimes we will just um, uh, petition to have somebody's MELD score elevated uh, because they are sicker than uh, um, uh, than their own MELD score uh, um, would have you think. Um, but uh, um, once you plug them in with their MELD score, um, then when an organ becomes available, uh, it, it goes through the allocation system and uh, you decide who's next on the list. And uh, um, we usually stick to that list pretty closely. Can you just uh, tell us what goes into the MELD score calculation for a potential transplant patient? Um, sure. It is uh, somebody's bilirubin. Um, Somebody's INR, we use uh, uh, their sodium uh, for a meld sodium and creatinine uh, are the, are the uh, indicators that go in, and there's a logarithmic scale. Um, as you can imagine, somebody who's in liver failure, they tend to do worse if they, are, if they have associated kidney injury. They tend to do worse if they have uh, hyponatremia. They tend to do worse if they have synthetic dysfunction. Their INR is going up. Their bilirubin's going up. and so. Uh, uh, the the worse those numbers are, the higher your MELD score is. We would now like to uh, transition into asking you some of the personal questions and uh, move from the clinical scenario. And thank you so much for that. That was all great information. So uh, to kick off this section, uh, what do you do uh, in transplant surgery? Uh, tell us what your typical week looks like. Sure. Um, I am a, a multi-organ transplant surgeon. I'm involved in kidney, liver, and pancreas transplant. I also have a uh, um, um, a practice doing vascular access uh, and dialysis access, peritoneal dialysis uh, work. Um, I'm at a center that uh, has five transplant surgeons. Um, we uh, train residents. Uh, we have residents in the second and third year uh, on our service. Uh, we have uh, medical students and uh, um, PA students who uh, are involved as well. And um, how do you all split up the call uh, between the five of you? Um, and who does the procurements? Some centers have fellows. Uh, and if you don't have a fellow, who who does your organ procurements for you? Yeah, yeah. So um, we uh, take a lot of call. Um, I'm on call uh, two, out, two out of three days. Um, and we usually do things a week at a time. And so somebody's on for kidney transplant for a week, somebody's on for liver transplant, somebody's on for donor call, uh, leaving the other two to be available for clinic, for elective general surgery or vacations, et cetera. Um, one of my partners does just liver transplant, one does just kidney transplant, and then there's three of us who split, uh, um, do both liver and kidney and pancreas. Um, we um, uh, 
as you can imagine with uh, three people on call at all times, we're on call a lot. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I guess I guess your question was who does the procurements? Um, we do, <laughs> and uh, um, it, it's it's just the way it's been done uh, at the center. Uh, we uh, usually take a resident with us, or a physician assistant, or a surgical first assist. Um, we do the majority of our procurements at our hospital currently, uh, but um, we do uh, cover a lot uh, Western North Carolina. And um, so there are a number of centers that we need to fly to, et cetera. So about 30 to 40 percent of our of our, our uh, organs that we accept, um, we, we will have to fly for. Uh, and uh, uh, we just have to do it. But our schedule set up that uh, uh, we're available to do it. And uh, it's something that uh, we still uh, still enjoy participating in. You're the group and division chief uh, at a quite an early stage in your career, how has that been for you and any advice for junior uh, faculty looking for a similar role in leadership? Yeah. Um, so um, uh, I did find myself in a, a leadership position uh, uh, early in my career. Um, and uh you know, um, a, a lot of that was mainly keeping things afloat and uh, uh, really keeping a program that has been had been very successful uh, um, uh, going. Um, uh, there have been some challenges along the way. Uh, you know, uh, being a, a division chief is more than uh, participating in meetings, more than just putting out fires, uh, or more than making the schedule. There. There's challenges that uh, come along with uh, program building. Um, there's challenges that come along with uh, dealing with hospital leadership and uh, um, hiring new partners. Uh, those aren't skills that you necessarily uh, innately have. Um, but uh, fortunately, I've had a great team uh, that I've worked with for a lot of years. Uh, uh, some of my partners uh, uh, were the ones who trained me um, uh, from the beginning, and uh, they're the reasons I, I went into transplant. And uh, um, you know, I found myself uh, a division chief, um, uh, and still working with some of them. And uh, it, they've been very supportive of that. Uh, and it, I think it just has to um, a lot, a lot to do with the culture that we have here. Uh, that I consider myself a player coach. Uh, that I'm still very involved in the the, the clinical aspects of uh, um, uh, of transplant and. Uh, that um, you know, we we all have our roles to to fill, and we've all uh, uh, um, feel like uh, not all of us have to um, um, be leaders in certain areas, but uh, we have to let each other grow and be leaders, whether it's in the clinical realm, the administrative realm, or teaching. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to have partners. Uh, uh, who uh, we've worked we've worked well with. You 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 had asked uh, what advice can I give people, um, uh, uh, residents or, or students yes. uh, or, or or young transplant uh, uh, physicians. And what I think uh, has worked well uh, with our team is that um, you, you know early on you you have this idea that you have to be good at everything, uh, and um, perhaps that doesn't give you the ability to really excel at any one thing and um, uh, I do agree that uh, you, you shouldn't necessarily focus on only one uh, aspect uh, in uh, uh, of your practice, but you certainly uh, 
should have some areas of focus and some areas of uh, expertise um, and that everybody doesn't have to be equal in your practice. You don't all have to be uh, instructors. And so I'll give you an example. One of my partners, Roger Denny, uh, is just really excellent with students. And so we used to split up the the, the teaching of residents uh, equally, but, you know, it was clear he enjoyed it. And, um, so we, we, we uh, tended to have him teaching uh, the students and uh, uh, a little bit more than everybody else. And he's really excelled at that. Uh, he, he, he would win the, the student teacher award uh, year after year. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, we, we all want to be excellent student teachers, but uh, he really excelled at it. So we, uh, uh, we really went with that. Um, some, some of my other partners were, uh, you know, excellent in other areas and we really wanted to play on that. So as you're going through, you know, figure out what you're good at, figure out, uh, um, where there's a need and, uh, and, and really make that, uh, um, make that a, a, a part of your workflow. You know, it, it's a, another way of saying follow your passion, et cetera. But, uh, you, you know, I, I found myself in a situation where, um, there was a need for somebody to step into a leadership role. And, um, you know, I, I, I had to learn along the way and, uh, uh, fortunately had the ability to have the support of, um, my, my department chair, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I, I think that everybody's job is going to look a little bit different. So um, uh, use that to your advantage and uh, it, it, it makes for a more interesting day. Going back to the same question, um, you mentioned something that you, you do end up taking a lot of call, especially with three physicians, three attendings being on call um, for that. How do you find your work-life family balance with the travel that's needed and the uh, unpredictable schedule that this uh, this profession holds yeah um uh, that certainly waxes and wanes uh how available i am at home um i have a supportive family i'm understanding uh uh, children um but you know I, i i'm not saying that uh they um uh that i'm not around um uh I liken being a transplant surgeon to being like a fireman, which is um, when you need someone, you need you need us all around. But when it's slow, there's not much going on. Uh, and that's a skill that if you're going to go into transplant, you need, which is um, for the slow times, you really need to be able to charge your batteries. You, you need to be able to take advantage of that time. Uh, and so, you know, my kids understand, hey, dad, you're on call this weekend. How's it looking? Can we do things? And so, we do things when uh, when I'm on call, and they understand that. Hey, if there's a transplant, you know that doesn't happen every day, but um, when it happens, that's great. Uh, we move things along, and so um, you know, uh, I make the joke that uh, we always had uh, the kids' birthdays. We had them scheduled, but we always always had a backup day, uh, and they understood that. That uh, hey, we're you know if if uh, if if things are busy, then um, you know, we're just going to get together a different day. You know, we're still going to have that time together. And, uh, um, it's, uh, it, 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 um, it's having that flexibility, uh, for my family that I think allows me to still have a work-life balance. And so when people ask me questions like that, I'm like, you know what, I, I love my kids just as much as everybody else. You know, I have a family life just as everybody else. It's, we've learned to be flexible and we've learned to, um, uh, to spend that time together in, in different ways and, uh, um, and, and, and still be able to, uh, have that commitment to, uh, uh, to, to my patients and to the program. And, uh, I think my partners do the same. They do a really good job of, 
of spending the times in between uh, um, filling that uh, work-life balance uh, in, a, in a positive way. Would you choose this career again? And do you have any last words of advice for students or residents thinking about a career in transplant surgery? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely would. Um, and uh, um, transplant's exciting. You know, as I mentioned, things have changed uh, drastically just in my 15 years. Uh, you know, hepatitis C is not a not an issue anymore. It's it's it, it's cured. Um, there have been a number of uh, um, technical uh, advancements. Uh, it would be, I mean, f for somebody who's starting in transplant now, so for a student who is thinking about going into transplant now, I could guarantee you that in your career, the treatment for end-stage liver disease, kidney disease, some aspect of your career, there is going to be some exciting technical medical advances that you could be a part of. And uh, I think that's why a lot of us are attracted to transplant is because uh, of, of, of what the future may hold. And so, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think that there will be uh, other technical advances before my career is over. Uh, but uh, if you're thinking about going into transplant now, um, hang on. It's going to be an exciting time. That's great advice. And that was all really good clinical and personal information. We appreciate you spending some time with us uh, for this series. Until next time, dominate the day.